Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm Kimberly St. Julian Varnon, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Christopher J. Lee about his new book, A Soviet Journey, A Critical Annotated Edition. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I teach history at Lafayette College. Um, I'm an associate professor of history and Afrikaner studies. Um, I should say uh, that my PhD is in African history. So uh, I don't have a PhD in Russian or Slavic studies. Um, So I could be open for criticism there. But um, anyway, it sort of, it also gets to the heart of the project. I um, this book is uh, a critical annotated edition of a memoir by a South African writer and activist named Alex Laguma. Um, so essentially, this book project is, you know, trying to connect, um, you know, African history with um, Russian and Slavic studies. And, you know, this memoir is unusual in the sense that it's, um, you know, this this book and this viewpoint on the Soviet Union um, by an African writer. So it's, it's an unusual book and this is what attracted me to the project. I should say that, um, you know, most of my work so far has looked at Southern Africa. Um, I've spent a lot of time in South Africa. I I taught at the university of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg for several years and went to South Africa for the first time. And, um, the mid 1990s, which is a long time ago now, but um, a lot of my work, uh, I should say this is uh, this is um, I've done five books, and these books have uh, you could sort of do a rough breakdown uh, between books that are sort of looking at you know the poly- you know 20th century history. In Southern Africa, but I've also been very interested in global history, and in particular, uh, particular in particular, third worldism and decolonization after the Second World War. So, so the reason why I mention this is just because this book um, by Laguma fits into this Cold War um, context. I, as I write in the introduction of the book, it. To me, it's a you know an artifact of Cold War cultural history, um, in addition to being um, you know a book that looks at the connections between South African anti-apartheid politics and the politics of the Soviet Union um, during the Cold War. So, anyway, a lot to talk about. But the the point being that um, you know I'm sort of the you know this text, which is about the Soviet Union, is to me also very much about South African history. And um, so it's, it's a way of connecting the, you know, complex histories of these two different places and, you know, understanding the ways they intersected um, during the 20th century. 
that's definitely a fascinating background coming from African history and Africana studies into Soviet history. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah, I know. I felt like I just said a lot. Yeah. So maybe I said too much. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, this is what attracted me to the project. Like I mentioned, I you know most people don't think about, you know, these sorts of connections. Um, but, you know, as I talk about in the introduction, if, you know, uh, you had a number of African and African-American intellectuals, you know, going to the Soviet Union, um, you know, starting in the 1920s. And, you know, some of these intellectuals are very well known. Um, George Padmore, um, you know, Claude McKay, um, later on, W.E.B. Du Bois and so forth. Um, but you also, you know, had intellectuals like Alex Laguma, um, who also went and are, I should, I should say that Laguma is very well known in South Africa, but not, you know, not as well known in, in um, the United States. Um, but anyway, I'm trying to flesh out that history in this book. Interesting. And so you just mentioned Alex Laguma isn't as well known in the United States. And admittedly, I didn't know about him until I read the book. Could you give us a little bit of background on him? Sure. Yeah. I mean, he's I mean, he's a fascinating person, you know, beyond this particular book that he wrote. Um, it should be said that that uh, he's primarily known as a writer of fiction, whereas this is a travel memoir. Um, Laguma was born in 1925 um, in Cape Town. Uh, he uh, was the son of James Laguma, who was one of the founders of the Communist Party of South Africa, which was founded in, in 1921. So so Alex Laguma was born into a political family. Um, he joined the Young Communist League in 1947, which is a year before apartheid started in 1948. Um, so at a young age, uh, you know, Alex became very active politically. And it should be said that, you know, being born in 1925, you know, Laguma's part of this, you know, famed generation that led the anti-apartheid struggle. Um, so, you know, figures like Nelson Mandela, but also, you know, Walter Sisulu, Oliver Tambo, you know, this, this generation that came of political age during the 1950s, um, Laguma was a part of that. And it should be said, too, that, I, that even though Laguma joined um, the Communist Party, that it's important to note that the Communist Party of South Africa and the African National Congress, that is the ANC, um, which is still in power today, um, had a very close relationship during the 50s. So by the end of his life, um, uh, Laguma was a member of the ANC. In fact, he was he was the diplomatic representative uh, for the ANC, for the Caribbean and Latin America. Um, that is to say, Laguma was based in Havana, Cuba, and he actually died there uh, in 1985, um, quite suddenly from a heart attack. Um, so he, you know, he had this very, um, you know, you know, in true form of being a communist, he had a very international, internationalist life. He, he was, he was, he was born in Cape Town, went into exile in 1966, um, and died in Havana, Cuba in 1985, um, from a heart attack. In fact, I, I've been to Cuba twice, uh, most recently this past um, May and uh, you know I found his grave and um, it's you know it's very you know I should 
you know, say too quickly that, you know, it's, it's, it's a good example of the many, you know, sort of small tragic, small personal tragedies of the anti-apartheid struggle. That is to say that, you know, we tend to, you know, hold on to the image of Nelson Mandela being released, um, you know, people coming back to South Africa after being in exile. But of course, you have figures like Laguma and figures like Steve Biko who died during the struggle. And I think it's just important to remember that. So that's another motivation for this project, actually, is, um, you know, trying to uh, revisit Laguma as one of these um, forgotten figures. And in fact, I should say to him, I'm currently working on a book of another collection of his writings that um, he wrote in exile. So it's something that's still on my mind. Interesting. And so you mentioned this, that he's a tragic figure. He dies before apartheid is over, and but he's also connected to the ANC. So it seems like there's a more radical connection and aspect of the ANC than what we would traditionally think. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's another motivation for this project. And it's something that I talk about at length. I should say this book, um, Soviet Journey, I, you know, I, I initially thought I was going to write a short introduction of maybe 5,000 words. I, I I ended up writing an introduction of about 30,000 words. So it's, there's a lot to talk about. Um, and you know, one of the reasons that I got so far into the introduction is that it's for exactly the point that you're making. I think that the radicalism of the ANC, um, and its association with the South African communist party is, you know, increasingly forgotten. It's increased, been increasingly marginalized and that's been happening within South Africa itself. That is to say that, you know, after the end of apartheid in 1994, you had um, this alliance between the SACP and the ANC. Um, that alliance, it still exists, but the SACP is definitely a much more marginal partner. Um, but, you know, beyond the, you know, politics of South Africa, even among historians, uh, and other scholars, I think there's also been a marginalization of the South African Communist Party. Um, and, you know, you do have, you know, you do have the SACP mentioned, but if you actually read the narratives, um, you know, the ANC is always, you know, in the foreground with the SACP being more to the side. And I think that even at, you know, even at the basic level of narration and storytelling, the SACP gets marginalized. Whereas I think there's this fascinating history um, through figures like Laguma, but also, you know, other figures like Moses Katane, um, Chris Hani, um, Joe Slovo and Ruth First. It is important to note that the South African Communist Party was um, essentially the first multiracial party in South Africa. So, yeah, so it has this, which, you know, we shouldn't idealize too much. That is to say, there were a lot of ten- there were a lot of tensions within the party too, as a result. Um, but it does have this. It does have that notor uh, that that notoriety, and so it's it, it also um, has a fascinating history for for that reason too. I'm actually I'm glad you brought up the multiracial aspect because as I was reading, I was thinking to myself, wait a minute, are, is this an integrated political organization? <laughs> yeah. 
Right, right. No, absolutely. And, and I, well, I don't interrupt. And so I was thinking, um, so you talk about the fact that the ideas of African, but also African-American self-determination that the Russian communists are supporting, how that leads to conflict within the Communist Party of South Africa. Yeah. So obviously this is a you know complicated history. So what I'll say briefly um, might be too simplistic, but, you know, essentially, and when, when the South African communist party was established in, um, 1921, which, you know, was relatively quick. I mean, you know, only four years after the Bolshevik revolution, um, which also makes it one of the oldest communist parties on the African continent. Um, the other party, the other, uh, the Egyptian Communist Party is also um, dates from the same period. But when, when the South African Communist Party was first established, it was established by um, effectively a, a group of, of white intellectuals, um, the most important being Sidney Bunting, um, who was actually born in the UK and came to, to South Africa. And essentially you had this situation during the 1920s where the Soviet Union – um, and the South African Communist Party are, you know, effectively um, in parallel, you know, trying to develop strategies. That is to say that um, in the Soviet Union, you have the founding of the Common Turn. You have, um, you know, Lenin uh, addressing the colonial question and um, following that, supporting national liberation for um, different colonies. And but then with the death of um, Lenin, that sort of leaving things somewhat open, as it did a number of issues in the Soviet Union. Meanwhile, um, in South Africa, you have you know this party that you know is founded by these white intellectuals, but you know in a black majority country. So so it quickly becomes a situation where Sidney Bunting, to his great credit, you know realizes okay, you know we this you know we need to develop a solid base with the black working class and the black peasantry. And so basically starting in the mid 1920s, you have this um, concerted effort to recruit black South Africans to the South African communist party. And so um, things change very quickly. And, and so you do have, um, you know, this, you know, just the set of tensions that would, would last really up until, say the mid up to world war two, where there's just a lot of debate about whether South Africa was ready for a working class revolution or whether South Africa should be approached like other colonial situations. That is to say, first there had to be a black liberation struggle followed by a second step um, of working class revolution. And in the end, South Africa embraced that second uh, two-part approach. That is to say, supporting a black national liberation struggle first and then a working class revolution. And that approach became known as the Native Republic thesis. And that approach in turn, um, as I talk about in the introduction, informed a lot of political thinking uh, in South Africa, I argue, up through much of the 20th century, even if um, people don't, you know, actively cite or refer to the the native republic thesis as such um 
I can get into much more detail, <laughs> but but that's sort of giving it. That, I mean, the point the point being, you know, to, just to go back to your original question. I mean, you you have so you have this this party that's evolving, like you know most political parties do, and and so by the you know by the 1930s, you know you have uh, especially the end of the 1930s with with people like Moses Katane, you have the emergence of a of a black leadership within the South African Communist Party. So, I, in other words, I don't want to give the impression that. Um, you know, it was it, it, it was a party that was riven by tension along racial lines. Um, in fact, you did have a lot of you know friendships and conviviality, um, and so you know I think I think the and, and you do you do have the emergence of figures like Joe Slovo, um, who is Jewish, uh, Ruth First, also member of the South African Communist Party. These figures during the 1950s who you know were very close to people like Mandela. And so you have um, the site essentially. So just to jump to the 1950s, you have the SACP and the ANC working together. And in fact, that partnership can also be understood as falling within the terms of the Native Republic thesis. That is to say, the SACP supported the ANC with the understanding that the ANC would lead to would lead a national liberation struggle. Um, which would then be followed by a working class revolution that would be led by the SACP. So if you want to understand South African politics, you could say that, okay, the first stage has been completed. That is to say that, you know, the ANC, you know, came to power and, you know, under Mandela in 1994. And that could, you know, which is to say that, you know, Perhaps some people are still waiting for the working class revolution to happen as a second stage, but that hasn't happened. And of course, the Soviet Union has collapsed and so forth. So anyway, that, that's a very long-winded answer to your initial question. But but it is important. I, I do think the, the SACP is important in that regard. And it should be said too, just, just maybe, maybe I'll make one final point. The ANC, which also um, has you know developed... Uh, is known for its its uh, you know non-racialism. Um, it actually didn't admit non-black members until 1969, and so I think that's something that's often overlooked. That is to say that you know we think of Mandela and the Rainbow Nation and all that, but it's that's 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 a really more recent phenomenon that. The ANC worked with other political organizations during the 1950s, like the the you know Indian National Congress and um, the South African Colored People's Organization um, and the SACP during the 50s. But in turn, and that formed what was called the Congress Alliance, led by the ANC. But in terms of membership, um, membership was still restricted until 1969. That's interesting. So it seems like there is this kind of cleansing of the radical aspects of the ANC. And it's kind of similar to what we see in United States history when we have the cleansing of the radicalism of MLK, for example. Um, and especially the, the more communist aspects, because the Soviet Union is very much in contact with the freedom fighter, fighters in America and in South Africa. Um, I'm interested in this aspect you talk about Russia's conflicted double consciousness where you have this working class 
aspect of the of the Soviet Union, well, the Russian Empire before the revolution, but they also have to deal with this colonial background and the oppression of minorities. And it's that strongly appeals to the South African communists and Laguma. So can you speak to the connection or the appeal that Russia overcoming this double consciousness had for South African communists? Sure. So there are a number of things about the Soviet Union. Um, I mean, there are a number of things about the Soviet Union that appealed to Laguma as a communist, but also as a South African. That is to say that, um, you know, the Soviet Union was a country that, um, you know, had cities that were heavily industrialized, but then also rural areas where, you know, there was a large peasantry and um, poverty and so forth. So in terms of that dynamic, um, that rural urban dynamic, that, that was very familiar to a South African. That is to say, you know, South Africa also had these um, industrialized cities um, due to the mining industry, but also, you know, rural areas that were very poor. So um, there was a kind of analogy there that Laguma and other communists, um, you know, drew and, and felt a kind of affinity for the Soviet Union. Um, the other thing about the Soviet Union is that, you know, it's the, the Soviet Union was, was um, you know, a, a federation of, of different, you know, national communities and, you know, with their own cultures and um, languages and um, histories. And, you know, effectively, South Africa was like that, too. I mean, you had, you know, all these different ethnic groups um, who, you know, which were in effect their own historical communities with languages and so forth. So in other words, the diversity of the Soviet Union and the ability of the Soviet government through socialism to, you know, transcend those differences and create, you know, a common identity. Um, Essentially Laguma and other South African communists, you know, thought that was a paradigm for South Africa. That is to say that in the same way that, you know, you could have Central Asian republics be part of the Soviet Union, um, benefit, you know, from its economy, benefit, um, you know, from its strength and and do it in a self-determined way. Um, there were South African communists like Laguma who, you know, saw that as a path for South Africa as well. That is to say that, you know, having different ethnic groups uh, different racial communities in South Africa also, you know, um, come together through socialism to, you know, create a new South Africa, a, you know, diverse, multinational, multilingual South Africa. Um, and so that that was sort of the, the appeal. Um, and, you know, there are other things, too, certainly, um, you know, the Soviet Union was seen as, um, you know, bringing economic justice, ending economic inequality. Um, South African communists, you know, viewed the Soviet Union on those terms. And, you know, with South Africa experiencing also tremendous economic inequality, um, you know, they saw the Soviet system as solving that too. So the upshot is that, um, you know, the Soviet Union was seen as this political paradigm. 
And it was seen as having solved, you know, problems of national difference, problems of, you know, cultural difference, problems of, of uh, class inequality. And these are all issues that South Africans struggled with. And so, you know, that's what made the Soviet system very appealing to Laguma. And so, you know, I should say that, you know, this book, A Soviet Journey, is very much a celebratory account of the Soviet Union, which also makes it fascinating. I mean, this is, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's 1978. And this is, it was published, first published in 1978. This is after, you know, Solzhenitsyn gets the Nobel Prize. You know, it's very late. In other words, it's, it's very different from, you know, Langston Hughes' account of Central Asia during the 1930s. It's, you know, it's different from Padmore's, you know, work um, also during the same time period in Claude McKay. It's also, you know, much later than, um, you know, Du Bois's um, engagement with the Soviet Union um, during the early Cold War period. So, you know, even though, I mean, this, and I should say quickly that, you know, this is also where the text will, you know, it has its problems too. I don't, and and this is something I bring out in my introduction as well. I don't think we should approach this book uncritically. Um, But it is important to note that, you know, South African communists, you know, were diehard believers um, up and up to the 1980s. And, Laguma was one of them. And so this is very much a celebratory account. The only, you know, the only comparison I can think of in the American case is, you know, somebody like Angela Davis, who, um, you know, also went to the Soviet Union during this um, later period and, you know, was a member of the American Communist Party and ran um, on its ticket and so forth. So it's important to keep that in mind, too, Um, just the longevity of, um, you know, the appeal of socialism um, and, you know, a more radical politics within the African community, African-American community up and, you know, up through, you know, the end of the 1970s and 1980s. So up to the present in some ways, too. And you kind of mentioned that the 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 way the role of the you know the Soviet Union in liberation struggles how it's kind of been lost in in our popular imagination and discussions. Um. So what I'm really interested in, in reading Langston Hughes' travels when he's in Central Asia and reading Laguma's travels in Central Asia, they both. The, it's interesting how their trips kind of parallel. They kind of go to the same places. Do you think that is because of the amount of control the the writers' union would have over their journeys and writings? Yeah, I mean it's it's a fascinating parallel, um, considering that you know they're traveling you know a number of decades apart um, from one another, and I think yeah, I mean I think one one um, answer to that is that you know Soviet authorities are controlling, um, you know where they went. It should be said too that, um, you know, not just controlling African or African-American travelers, but, you know, travelers more generally, that is to say that, um, there's this fast, excuse me, there's this fascinating book, um, by Michael David Fox, a historian of the Soviet union about travelers to the Soviet union. And, um, you know, he talks about, first of all, he talks about the sheer number of people who went, you know, to see the quote unquote, you know, Soviet experiment. Um, but that also, you know, it was 
very, you know, orchestrated. And so, you know, I think both in the case of Langston Hughes and um, Laguma, um, yeah, I mean, they were, they were, you know, going through an itinerary that um, was, you know, you could say prefabricated, you know, this desire for Soviet authorities to show particular things. Um, but to take that a step further, you know, I think the importance of Soviet Central Asia is that it was an area that um, highlighted the way in which the Soviet system was basically, you know, incorporating, um, you know, a country that, you know, is predominantly rural, you know, large peasantry and incorporating that, um, that underdeveloped region of the Soviet Union into, you know, into modernity, you know, into um, a modern economy. And, um, you know, this is, you know, something that I think the Soviet Union thought would be appealing to African-American intellectuals as well as a South African intellectual like Laguma. And it should be said that, you know, Laguma, when you read it, I mean, he, you know, he loves it. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, and it it should should be said Langston Hughes did too. I mean, he, you know, Langston Hughes is fascinating. Um, And, you know, this is not, you know, the same way that, you know, you know, we think of Langston Hughes for, um, you know, his poetry and so forth, but, you know, he, he, this part of his life is also neglected um and it's fascinating um there's some scholars you know and i should i shouldn't say it's been totally neglected i mean there 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 are scholars who've you know picked up on this and um you know traced how his his early um or his experiences in the soviet union informed his his aesthetics and so forth later in his life but you know, in Laguma's case, I mean, he he's he's very celebratory. I mean, he thinks what the Soviet Union has done for Central Asia is great, but but I should say carefully too that you know at the same time, you know, Laguma will celebrate you know these agricultural projects, you know, the electrification Central Asia, you know, these these hydroelectric excuse me hydroelectric dams, but then also you know be very careful to you know also celebrate the the deep histories of Central Asia. Um, that is to say, going back to the Silk Road. And um, so it's an interest. So Laguma's book is interesting in that, in the sense that he is sort of, you know, tacking in both directions. Um, and I don't see it as, um, I don't know, paradoxical or, or hypocritical on his part, but rather Laguma arguing that the Soviet system was able to accommodate both things at once. That is to say this, um, this kind of futurity, this, you know, ambitious future for Central Asia, but also not neglecting its, its, you know, unique past. Interesting. I I think it's the parallels between Laguma and Hughes are fascinating, especially their connections with Central Asia. Um, But I was wondering, he talks about in the, in the second chapter of the book, well, he goes into Kazakhstan and he's talking about how successful collectivization has been in Kazakhstan. Was he aware of the, the issues with famine and uprising that they were having in Kazakhstan in the thirties for collectivization 
Or do you think, <laughs> is that where the Soviets kind of censor? <laughs> well, this, you know, this, okay. So the, it's fast. It's a great question. Um, it's, it's fascinating to think about. I mean, I, I mean, the short answer is that I'm sure Laguma knew um, just because it was widely known. Um, I do make a footnote of this. Um, I think that, you know, there, there are a lot of parts of the book that, again, the, its tone of being very celebratory, you know, it, it, I think it can be approached two ways. One is that, you know, it was, I, I should say that the book was published in 1978 in Moscow by Progress Publishers. So, you know, it undoubtedly received some kind of editorial treatment where, you know, there was, you know, definitely the potential for cutting out anything that the Soviet authorities might see as controversial. Um, so it likely did receive, you know, some kind of editing. On the other hand, um, in looking at the remaining manuscripts, um, I, so I did some, you know, archival research on the book. Um, Laguma's papers are held at the University of the Western Cape um, in Cape Town in South Africa. And, and looking at the drafts of the manuscript, um, there isn't a lot of difference between the final book and what Laguma wrote. Um, and that's not to say that there might be a missing draft where he goes into these sorts of things, but um, there isn't a lot of difference, which is, to, which is to suggest the second approach to these erasures, um, like these famines. That is to say that Laguma, you know, Laguma was a lifelong communist. Um, he was very orthodox in his views. So even if he knew... Um, you know, if, if like a number of people, even if he knew of these, you know, famines and, and, you know, the gulag system and so forth that either he softened his words or didn't talk about it or spoke about it elusively because he didn't want to critique the Soviet union. Um, and, you know, he's, he, I, I think that's, and certainly I think that's grounds for critiquing Laguma. Um, but I will say that, you know, for me at least, I think that in a sense makes the book even more fascinating um, in the sense that, you know, it, it points to how, you know, you had these activists who were, you know, diehard communists um, up until the end. And I, I don't think it's fair to just call them naive. I think, you know, it's one of the trade-offs, you know, um, that, you know, if he was so committed that he was willing to overlook these other things. And, you know, if I, if I may go in a slightly different direction, you know, with the issue of, of um, the gulag, um, you know, something that I, just because it's something else I bring out in the in the introduction, um, the thing about Laguma is that, you know, he, before he left South Africa in 1966, he experienced, you know, long, you know, a number of episodes of imprisonment. He experienced solitary confinement and he experienced house arrest, um, all, um, in South Africa, you know, because of the apartheid government cracking down on activists. Laguma was a victim of that. 
So there's this paradox um, specific to Laguma of him having experienced those things and, you know, knowing what it's like to be um, imprisoned without trial and yet not talking about it in the Soviet case. And, you know, it's one of these things that's very hard to account for. Um, you know, it is a paradox. And, um, you know, the way I talk about I so in the introduction, I talk about this and, and, and you know, say, well, what does this mean? And again, I mean, the one of the answers I give is that, well, it was one of the, you know, costs of of his political commitment to the Soviet Union and, and communism. That is to say that he stayed silent on certain things. However, I will say that, you know, it, it is interesting too, um, in a Soviet journey, he does not talk about the gulag system, but he does talk about the prison system under the czar. So, 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 which is fascinating to me. So, you know, it even heightens the, the question even more. And so, you know, I think there are ways in which, Laguma sort of, you know, tilted his hat to his readers saying, yes, I know there's a prison system in the Soviet Union, but let me talk about it through the example of the prison system under the czar. So, you know, it's, but again, you know, it's one of these things that he, that's hard to answer uh, completely, but I, you know, Again, but I, I guess to the more to the point is that is just to say that Laguma wasn't naive. He wasn't ignorant. Um, he talked about these things in different ways. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's another complicating factor of this book. It, it is fascinating, and just like you see with Langston Hughes, he kind of does the same thing where he's talking about uh, the women in Central Asia and he talks about the, the veil, but you don't get the background to how hard it was in the Basmachi revolution and rebellions. So I think it's fascinating. Um, so another question I had is about the similarities between Hughes and Laguma and the idea of being in Central Asia, being in the Soviet Union in a way freed Hughes's mind. So he's being able to break free from the oppression of the United States. And in a way it allows him to think about himself as a person of color in a different way. Do you see Laguma going through that same process? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I mean, I will, I will say that um, I think the difference between Laguma and Hughes is that, you know, you had a black majority in South Africa. So, you know, Laguma, I, and I should say too quickly that um, Laguma was uh, considered colored. That is to say he was of mixed race background. Um, so, you know, he wasn't, I guess, in a technical sense, black, but certainly Laguma identified with um, uh, just a lot of, identified with a lot of black activists um, he and the Black Liberation Struggle. He wasn't. Um, he was involved with colored politics during the nineteen fifties, but those were linked up to the ANC. And you know, it. it, um, it you know, he wasn't a separatist of any kind, especially you know through his communism. I mean, he was very much a, again an internationalist and um, committed to. Um, you know, not really not only the South African liberation struggle, but, you know, the Palestinian struggle and, and other causes around the world at the time. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that that growing up in Cape Town, even though the you know, even though he grew up, you know, during this period of segregation prior to apartheid, and even though he, you know, obviously was an anti-apartheid activist and, you know, understood what racism was, he also had a certain comfort knowing he was within this, you know, within this um, non-white majority, which I think is different from Hughes, where, you know, as an African-American, you know, he just had this, you know, minority feeling um, throughout his life. So, you know, the, the, it's, so in other words, for Laguma to travel to the Soviet Union, it's not as if he um, found release or, uh, you know, a new kind of space. Um, but having said, you know, to, to sort of feel more comfortable in, but, you know, having said that, I mean, I, I think that, you know, and this is something that, that uh, Hughes writes about and, and Laguma does too, you know, the, People of Central Asia are brown people, quote unquote. And you, you know what I mean? So, you know, there, there's a kind of, um, you know, feeling of affinity, um, you know, a sense of, um, you know, identification. I think that, that Laguma felt like he could move fairly easily in Central Asia. Um, and, you know, you know, without... Um, you know, experiencing the kind of ordinary or statutory racism that he faced in South Africa. So, you know, I think that, that, um, Laguma, you know, certainly had a, you know, race certainly was a, you know, issue that he grappled with throughout his life, but maybe in slightly different ways from, from Hughes, but that, but, you know, that's something, um, certainly worth examining more. That's it's really interesting the idea because both of them talk about the brown skin of the Central Asians. Yeah, yeah, that's why I brought it up. I mean, they literally mm-hmm. use the term brown. Uh, yeah, so um, so you go into the aspect of socialist realism and its influences on Laguma's writing, and so can you kind of see a, a Soviet journey within the realm of socialist realism with him being that positive hero you would see in socialist realist writing? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, and I should say that that, um, that part of the introduction is where I'm sort of coming up, up, up against my own limits as a scholar. That is to say that, you know, I'm a historian, I'm not um, a literary critic, and so, you know, certainly there are, um, you know, people who, you know, are better versed in socialist realism and able to make a, you know, a more acute assessment than I do. But having said that, I felt like um, in the introduction, I should, you know, mention this as a possibility. And there's several reasons for it. First, um, Laguma, uh, in fact, this is part of the current book project that I'm working on. Laguma was very much interested, very much influenced by Maxim Gorky. And so, you know, and, and this is before he went, before Laguma went to the Soviet Union. So he read Gorky um, when he, during his youth um, in Cape Town and was, the thing that appealed to Laguma about Gorky was that Gorky wrote about ordinary people and, you know, members of the working class and impoverished people. And Laguma, you know, grew up in this neighborhood of District 6 in Cape Town that was very working class, very impoverished. Um, Some people called it a slum. Um, So, 
so Laguma was, you know, in terms of his personal background, you know, was very, very working class. He, he's what you might call a, you know, organic intellectual in the Gramscian sense. That is to say that Laguma's formal education ended with high school. He didn't, Laguma didn't go to university. Um, when he graduated from high school, he started working in a factory and became involved in trade union politics and so forth. So when Laguma read Gorky, he realized that he could write about, um, you know, the circumstances that he'd grown up in, that that could be a subject of literature. So, you know, jumping to socialist realism, um, you know, I think that it's important to consider how not only Laguma, but other African writers were influenced by Russian and Soviet writing. And the reason why I think that is important is that you have other African writers like Ngugi Wationgo um, from Kenya, like um, Sembe Nusman from Senegal, um, who was a member of the Communist Party, um, you know, going to the Soviet Union, reading Soviet writers. And, you know, I think even if their writing and Laguma's is not, you know, socialist realism in a strict sense, that I think we should consider how socialist realism as a aesthetic influenced their thinking and approach to their own writing. Um, They're writing about African conditions. And I also stress this simply because a lot of, my take is that a lot of, um, you know, work on African literature has drawn connections between, you know, African writers and, uh, you know, writers in France or writers in Great Britain or even American writers like Hemingway and Steinbeck and so forth and their influence on African writing. Meanwhile, neglecting, you know, these other parts of the world like the Soviet Union. And I, I, I think there's a kind of erasure there. And I think that 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 neglect is actually also a consequence of the end of the Cold War. That is to say that with the defeat of the, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's like we don't have to deal with that that the Soviet Union is a cultural influence anymore. Um, and I think that's problematic. Um, there's a kind of triumphalism and um, you know, with with the end of the Soviet Union, you know, Soviet writers, socialist realism doesn't matter anymore. And I think that that's wrong. I think that we need to think about how Soviet writing, how socialist realism affected African writing. Um, and I think that's a area that, again, some scholars are working on. Um, people like Monica Popescu, for example, who's at, at, at uh, McGill in Montreal. She's a friend of mine. Um, you know, there are people who are, you know, trying to piece that together, but I think we really need to challenge the sort of, I don't know, the, you know, the Achebe, you know, the Chino Achebe, um, Wole Shoinka. I mean, these are great writers. I don't, I don't mean to diminish them, but, but just to say that there are these, um, African writers who embraced radicalism and the aesthetics of, of radicalism in a way that we need to think more carefully about. And so this is why I raised the issue of socialist realism um, in the book. That is to say that the Soviet journey, the narrative, um, it possesses certain qualities of, of socialist realist 
texts as um, described by Katerina Clark and, and other um, Slavic studies people. So it's, it's a question I raised in the introduction, and I hope other scholars will develop that further. That's interesting. I think it brings us back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, this kind of necessary connection between Africana studies and Russian and Soviet studies. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, 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 I, well, I don't mean to interrupt, um, but just quickly the, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, it's, it's a product of area studies more generally, right? I mean, we sort of have these enclosed continental ways of thinking about the world that don't allow for, you know, these connections, um, these transnational connections. And um, that, you know, is precisely what I want this book to do is sort of, um, you know, challenge these boundaries. And I, I should say quickly that um, I had a very difficult time publishing this book <laughs> because, you know, a number, no, seriously, I mean, a number of publishers were like, is this African literature? Is it Soviet studies? Like, you know, and, you know, publishers, they're, you know, the first thing on their mind is, you know, how do I market this? And so, you know, it's, it's a book that, um, you know, sort of defies how, you know, genre as well as geogra- geography. So um, I'm completely grateful to Rayland Rabaka, um, who edits this series um, ex- at Lexington Books for, for taking this project on um, because it, you know, it, it's a book that, that doesn't, that doesn't fit into either place. But again, I think that's precisely its strength um, that it challenges these boundaries. And as I say in the introduction, I think, I think a Soviet journey um, helps expand African literature, that African literature isn't just about conditions in Africa, quote unquote, but it's also about how African writers saw the world, saw other parts of the world. Um, in other words, we shouldn't just let Conrad, you know, Joseph Conrad and, you know, um, you know, these imperial writers write about whatever they want to without criticism. We should also have, you know, these anti-imperial writers also, you know, we should give them, you know, credit for, you know, writing about these um, other times and places. So, you know, that's another ambition with this book. I just hope it helps expand our definition of African literature, including travel writing, including accounts of other countries. Excellent. And I think it also helps us in Soviet studies to understand the immensity of the impact of the Soviet experience. So, Definitely. I think it's it crosses those boundaries. And like you've said, in terms of regional studies, we can become very, very focused within our own little vacuums. Yeah, it can get very parochial. And, you know, just to add to that, I mean, the, you know, the, um, this is very, there's a lot of your, and, you know, this is taking it in a slightly different direction, but a lot of Cold War um, histories, a lot of, studies of Cold War culture, I think are very Eurocentric. Um, That is to say, focusing on the sort of East-West dynamic of Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, and then Western Europe and the United States. You know, there's not enough North-South dialogue, you know, the way in which, um, you know, 
African intellectuals went to the Soviet Union. Or I should say, too, that, you know, another important aspect of Laguma is that he was a part of the Afro-Asian Writers Association, which brought writers from, you know, different parts of Africa and Asia together. Um, so Laguma was involved in sort of multiple, um, you know, third world projects. And um, I don't think he was alone. You know, you had people like Richard Wright, you know, going to Bandung, going to, you know, the Gold Coast. There's this whole sort of, you know, Cold War cultural literature that um, that is get, is getting increasing attention. And I hope this book will be a part of it. Excellent. Well, Chris, we've taken up a lot of your time today. <laughs> <laughs> I've taken up a lot of your no, time. I'm sorry I spoke so, so much. I felt like I was interrupting you the whole time. I, no, I apologize. We learned hope, so much. I hope it was useful. Um, so well, my good, final question is, so you mentioned a little bit earlier, but sure. what is like, what are your projects you're working on right now? Yeah. So um, essentially I'm, I, I keep, I, I keep thinking I'm close to finishing, but then something else comes along and I'm, I have to postpone it. But effectively I'm, I'm working on a, I guess you could say it's kind of a sequel to a Soviet journey, which is basically collecting the exile writings of Laguma um, into a book. That is to say that while he was in exile from 1966 to 1985, he wrote um, a number of literary essays, um, pieces of travel journalism, um, political tracts, uh, book reviews, um, as well as some short stories. And, um, you know, he wrote these for various journals. Um, a lot of these journals now defunct and so I'm trying to pull them together into a single book. In fact, I, I should say that I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm very close to being done. The book is under contract with Seagull Books, which um, you might be familiar with. They, they have a, a series called The Africa List that um, Rosalind Morris at Columbia University edits. And they, they just published a book that Brent Hayes Edwards translated um, called Phantom Africa. Anyway, it's a, it's a very, um, you know, sort of a boutique uh, prestigious series. So I'm, I'm really happy to have this under contract with them. The, the manuscript itself is um, God help me. It's about 130,000 words, which, which is, is long. I mean, I, I mean, the, I should say a Soviet journey was about 90,000 words. So this is, you know, it's, it's longer, but, you know, again, I think it, it points to Laguma's productivity while he was in exile. Um, and the fact that he didn't write just about South Africa, but he wrote about, um, the Soviet union. He wrote about Cuba where he, again, as I mentioned early on, he ended up, he wrote about, uh, North Vietnam where he traveled. He wrote about Algeria, Lebanon. Um, so, my hope is that, you know, this book of essays will give a sense of the diversity of his output. That is to say, he didn't just write, you know, short stories and novels, but he also, um, you know, wrote a lot of other things. And through that, I also hope it, you know, creates a kind of archive. Um, he didn't leave a autobiography. He didn't, you know because he died so suddenly, you know, he didn't, you know, leave a final statement. So 
I'm hoping this book, you know, provides something like that, you know, just gives readers a sense of what he was doing um, during this, you know, almost 20 year period when he was in exile. Um, so that's what I'm working on. And it, I hope it speaks to conversations about um, third worldism, Cold War history, you know, decolonization, the anti-apartheid struggle. Um, in fact, a lot of the issues that he wrote about, I think, are still alive today, um, not just in South Africa, but, um, you know, within other conversations about decolonization and the decolonial turn and, um, you know, how do we, how do we um, create a national culture um, in the wake of colonization? And in that sense, Laguma, you know, his thinking aligns with, again, people like Ngugi Wationgo and decolonizing the mind and um, a number of other African thinkers. So I just hope this, this new book project will help restore Laguma to, to academic conversations about these issues. That sounds like a very impertinent project and a very immense project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very... I, well, I, yeah, it is a big project, but I wanted to include as much as possible. So that's that's one reason why it's it's big. But um, well, Chris, I want to thank you for being on the show today. Um, I really enjoyed it, and I know the listeners will enjoy it. So take care. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> no Thanks problem. so much for having me. <laughs>